Well, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 13. This is our second message in our new series on the life of Abraham uh, that we began two weeks ago. Today we'll be looking at Genesis 13 and 14. Before we do that, I just want to ask this question. Have you ever felt that you were too weak for God to use you? Perhaps it was after a season of deep doubts where you were questioning the big D doubts like, is God real? Is Jesus Christ the son of God and the savior of the world? Or perhaps it was the small D doubts, the ones that we struggle with every day where we we struggle with believing whether God loves us or whether God is faithful to us. Whatever it may have been, it left you feeling like God could never really use you. God would never lift you up as an example for others to follow. You would always be characterized as a second or third class Christian, someone whose faith merely survives rather than thrives. I wonder if that's how you feel today. You've come to think of yourself as someone who will always be a taker rather than a giver, a sort of spiritual sink in which other people have to pour into constantly rather than a spiritual tap that pours out into others because your doubts are too great and your sin's too dark for you to ever be anything more. You believe that God could use other people. In fact, when it comes to other people, you have quite a bit of faith, but you don't have that same faith for yourself. When you think about yourself, you think that your faith's too weak, your sin's too strong for God to ever use you like that. Well, that's how Abram could have felt at the end of Genesis 12. He had just failed God in massively disappointing ways through his doubts and through his sin. He doubted God's promises, promises to give him the land of Canaan, promises to multiply his offspring, promises to bless him and make him a blessing. You'll remember what happened when famine hit the land of Canaan, the promised land. Uh, He didn't stop and inquire of the Lord. He didn't trust God's promise that this would be an abundant land of blessing. Instead, he bolted to Egypt. And then in Egypt, what did he do? Well, he, he essentially sold his wife for the sake of his own life. He lied about who she was so that she entered Pharaoh's harem. And without a wife, of course, you can't have children. So he was not believing God's promise to give him offspring. He failed as a man of God and he failed as a man, period. He hid behind his wife to take the bullet instead of him. This man, in other words, a man named Abram, this man who is known as the fa- one of the fathers of our faith, the patriarchs of God's people, he was a selfish, doubting coward. But the fact remained that he was still God's chosen means to bless the world. And this remained unchanged despite his doubts and his sins. That's why God rescued him from Egypt, not just by the skin of his teeth, but laden with wealth and riches. And so as we turn from chapter 12 to chapters 13 and 14, the question for us as readers is, how will Abram respond? How will he rebound from this disappointing chapter in his life characterized by doubt and sin? Would he continue doubting God's promises or would he start believing them? And as we'll see, the picture that Genesis paints of Abram in our text today is much different than the man that we encountered in Genesis chapter 12. The man we're going to encounter today 
is a paradigm of faith. He's courageous rather than cowardly. He's self-sacrificing rather than selfish. He is a changed man. And it is this testimony that Abram brings to us in our text today that gives us encouragement and confidence that despite our doubts, despite our sins, God can change us as well and use us for his mighty purposes. So we're going to read our text today. It's a a lengthier portion of scripture. Um, There is value sometimes in just meditating on a verse or two. There's also value in reading larger portions of scripture as well and seeing how the different pieces of the narrative fit together to point us to the gospel. So let's read Genesis 13 and 14 together now. This is the word of the Lord. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. 
And they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. I think I deserve a medal for that. <laughs> then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Emraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Well, the title of this sermon is The Faith of a Recovering Doubter. My aim today is to show you that God can turn the worst doubters into the strongest believers. God can turn the worst doubters into the strongest of believers. As we walk through our text, we're going to look at how Abram responds to the different tests that God puts into his life, and we're going to glean from that four faith lessons for us to look at, imitate, and apply to our lives. Those four lessons are as follows. First, do what's right, not what's new. Second, walk by faith, not by sight. Third, fear God not man, and fourth, glorify God, not yourself. First, do what's right, not what's new. Well, our text today begins with Abram leaving Egypt along with his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, along with all that he has. Verse two tells us that Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now, that's extraordinary when you consider the context. Um, He had just been exiled from Egypt, where he had received all this wealth. Pharaoh had given it to him as a dowry for marrying 
the, the woman whom he believed to be Abram's uh, sister, but was actually his wife, Sarai. And uh, after that truth came out, the Pharaoh would have been in his right to take that dowry back, to uh, uh, strip him of all the wealth that he had been blessed with, but that didn't happen. Uh, Pharaoh ended up releasing Abram back into his home country with all the wealth that he had given him because God was watching over him to bless him. And so when we read verse two, um, that Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, we just have to pause and say, that's, that's amazing. You know, God turned what was an impossible, dark, uh, discouraging situation and turned it into blessing. God was watching over this man. and He was committed to bless him despite his failures. Abram, he knew this, which is why he does what he does next. Verses three and four tell us that he went to a place between Bethel and Ai, and there he called upon the name of the Lord. Now, sometimes when we read about specific places in Old Testament narrative, um, the purpose of that is just to show us that these are historical events. Um, But here, the purpose is a little different um, uh, because the text is showing us that Abram is returning to the place where he had last encountered God. Back in chapter 12, when Abram was first entering the land of Canaan, uh, chapter 12, verse eight said this, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Well, that's where he is once again in chapter 13, post-exile from Egypt. Verse three intentionally goes out of its way to tell us this. It says that he went to where his tent was at the beginning between Bethel and I to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now that is what Abram should have done when the famine hit the promised land. He should have went to that altar, worshiped God, and called upon the name of the Lord in prayer, but he didn't. Instead, he seized his future in his own hands and made an independent decision to go into Egypt. But now as he returns from Egypt, humbled by his folly, And amazed by the grace of God, he returns to this place of worship, this altar where he had once offered God sacrifice, and he prays. Now, it seems simple to us that that's what he would do. Uh, We need to recognize that what he's doing is he is following the the tradition of his ancestors. This is the the, 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 the way of offering himself to God that was handed down to him by his forefathers. For example... Genesis 4, verse 26 tells us that in the times of Seth, that is the second generation of of humanity, it says to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then in Genesis 8, after the flood, one of Noah's first acts as as he exits the ark was to do this. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So what Abram's doing here is as he leaves Egypt, exiled there, ashamed of his own sin and his doubting of God's promises, he doesn't go in and experiment with new religious or spiritual exercises. He doesn't say, well, that, that stuff didn't work in the past. You know, I'm going to try something new. No, he returns to the ancient paths. Now, this is instructive for us because we live in an age when novelty reigns, 
We're looking for the newest things, the newest gadgets, the newest fashions, the newest pop culture icons, because we get bored of the old. There's something in us that craves the dopamine rush of the new. Most of us, you know, you can probably relate to this, you, 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 you scroll through Netflix or some other streaming service and all you see is these old shows and you're just like, boring, boring, I don't want to watch that. I want to look at the new releases. We're infatuated with the novel. Now this boredom with the old, this obsession with the new, translates into our spiritual lives as well. It's certainly true of our personal spiritual lives. I wonder how many of you have woken up in the morning and be like, oh, I gotta read my Bible again. You know, I'd rather just turn on my computer and watch a YouTube video. I mean, it could be a John Piper video or whatever. I mean, I just need something easier. I need something newer than just the same old thing. It can also be true of our corporate spiritual lives. You know, as you look at the top 50 songs that are sung in congregations on CCLI, I mean, why do so many of the songs have so little gospel content? It's because people are bored of singing about the cross. They want to sing about something new, something exciting, something they haven't sung about before. Or why does the preaching in so many churches sound more like a glorified TED talk than the proclamation of the gospel? Well, it's because expository, Bible-based preaching is out of vogue. Boredom kills both the life of the soul and the life of the church. The endless search for novelty will never lead us closer to God because it is only in the ancient paths that we discover God and have an encounter with the Almighty. As Jeremiah 6 verse 16 says, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, walk in it and find rest for your souls. We don't need what's new. We need more of what is old, what is ancient, because it is walking in the ancient paths that we find the one who will give us rest for our souls. That's what Abram did. He didn't leave Egypt and return to Canaan thinking, well, what I used to do clearly didn't work. Maybe I need to try something new. He didn't do that. He returned to the ancient paths of his forefathers. He offered sacrifices to God on the altar and called upon the name of the Lord in prayer, knowing that it was these simple means of grace that he needed to grow into being a man of faith. Now, it wouldn't be long before Abram's newfound faith would be tested. And once again, he would have to decide whether he would trust his own judgment or God's leading. And that leads us to our second faith lesson. Walk by faith, not by sight. Now recall what it was that led Abram to originally leave the promised land and to enter Egypt. It was famine. The land failed him. And that led him to draw the conclusion that God's promises had failed him. And now here in verses five to seven, it appears that the land is failing yet again as the land was unable to support both Abram and Lot. They had so many flocks and herds and people that they couldn't dwell together. Now think about the long-term implications of this in Abram's mind. The famine is over. This is a time when the land of Canaan is flourishing and yet it's coming up empty. God had promised, after all, to make Abram a great nation, a nation that would be so numerous and influential that they would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. How could this land support a nation like that when it couldn't even support 
two families. Well, to make matters worse, verse 7 says that there was also strife between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. The family, you know, this family is supposed to be blessed by God. It's not getting along. And then we're reminded at the end of verse 7 that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. This promised land is getting crowded. There's not much room for Abram to grow and uh, it, would be, be, it seems increasingly unlikely that God's promise to give Abram this land will ever work out. When you consider all that was going on here in Abram's life, we might expect Abram's faith to crumble once again as it did when he first entered the promised land. Or we might expect him to seize control of the situation like he did uh, as he entered Egypt and move elsewhere, leaving God's promises behind in the promised land. But that's not what he does. Because Abram isn't who he used to be. He's a new man now. He has seen how God kept his promises to him in the past. And it gives him confidence to know that God will keep his promises in the future. And this leads him to do something absolutely remarkable. Verses 8 to 9, Abram approaches his nephew Lot and tells him he doesn't want strife between them or their herdsmen because they're kinsmen, they're family. And so, rather than assert his right as the uncle over the nephew to choose where he would move first, Abram gives up that right, and he leaves the choice to Lot. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. Abram, he doesn't assert his will and seize control of the situation like he did in the past. Instead, Abram leaves his fate in the hands of his nephew Lot, trusting that God will provide. And so Lot, we see, in verse 10, he surveys the land, looks out to the horizon, to the north, south, east, and west, and his eyes settle on this land in the east, this land called the Jordan Valley, um, this fertile, protected slice of land that was well-watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. This place looks like Eden. It looks like paradise, you think about those, you know, National Geographic or, you know, BBC documentaries, you know, they do the flyby of those beautiful waterflies and those lush green forests and it's full of life and fruitfulness. That's what the Jordan Valley looked like. It was like Egypt, a land that would remain unaffected even when famine plagued the surrounding country because it had rivers flowing through the land. It was the perfect place, in other words, for a young family to prosper and grow. But rather than choose that for himself, Abram gave his nephew the right to choose it first. That's what Lot does. Lot chooses the fertile Jordan Valley, leaving Abram yet again with the promised land, with Canaan, the land of famine, the land that had failed him over and over again, the land that couldn't sustain him and his nephew. Now, from a worldly perspective, none of this makes any sense. It seems that Lot would be the one who would be blessed by God. Lot would be the one who would become a great nation. Lot would be the one who would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, not Abram. But as we will see, there was more going on here than meets the eye. You see, the text shows us that the Jordan Valley may have been beautiful to the eye, but inside, it was rotten with corruption. The text alludes to this twice in verses 10 and 13 as it reminds the reader that Sodom and Gomorrah were there, two cities occupied by wicked men who were great sinners against the Lord. And for those who know their Old Testaments, you'll know that a few chapters later in chapter 19, God would rain fire and sulfur on these two cities and utterly destroy them. 
In contrast, God repeats and expands upon the blessings that he has in store for Abram in verses 14 to 18. He tells him to lift up his eyes now to the horizon, northward, westward, eastward, southward, and promises to not only give him and his offspring this land, but to make his offspring as the dust of the earth. This is the first time God has given this picture, this illustration to show Abram the greatness of his promises to him and his descendants. He then invites Abram to walk through the land and enjoy it because all of it will one day be given to him. He may not see it. He may not have seen or understood how it would all work out eventually, but it it would happen because God promised it. And Abram responds to this with faith in verse 18. He settles by the oaks of Mamre at Hebron where he builds another altar to the Lord and worships. Now this is a powerful reminder to us that God wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. Now it would be fine to walk by sight if we could see the whole picture. If we could see how everything would turn out. If we could see how the beautiful valley was actually inwardly corrupt. But we don't. We only see a small piece of what's truly going on and not the whole picture. Lot, he made his decision based on what he saw. And he presumed that that decision would be the wisest and the best for his family. But as we will soon see, it would be a decision that would come back to haunt him in terrible ways. Abram, on the other hand, made his decision not on what he saw, but on what God said. He believed God's promise that he would bless him, that he would give him land, that he would multiply his offspring, and he held on to that promise despite how things appeared. Now this is a word for all of us, but it is especially a word for those who like to have everything under control. It's for those who spend incessant time thinking and planning for the future so that nothing unpredictable happens. It's for those who know that if they were in Abram's shoes, you wouldn't be piously saying, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. You'd be like, the left's mine. You know, I'm going there, the Jordan Valley, that is my home because I'm not letting another famine hurt me and my family. Well, if that's you, our text has a warning. It warns you that the decisions that may make sense from a human perspective may actually be what's most harmful. We see the beautiful fertile valley, but we don't see the corruption within. Perhaps it's accepting a new job that comes with a nice pay raise or moving to a certain neighborhood that seems to be a, a, a Uh, ideal neighborhood, or it could be spending too much time with a certain group of people. If we move forward trusting in our own judgment, our own instincts, our own five senses, in order to plan out our future and keep everything under our control, then we may end up actually losing the good that God has stored up for us. And that's what Lot did. And that's what would happen to him. He knew God's promises to Abram, that this land, the land of Canaan, the land of famine, That was the promised land. And that was where Abram would become a great nation and would bring blessing to the entire world. He knew it. He just didn't believe it. He didn't believe that the land of Canaan could be better than the Jordan Valley, and so he turned his back on it. And when he did that, he turned his back on God's promises. Let us not make the same mistake. Let us not trust ourselves more than we trust God. Let us learn to submit our futures our plans, our judgment of what's best to God and to his word and watch as he makes blessing seemingly come out of nothing. 
We begin to see this in chapter 14 as events begin to unfold. Abram, living in the land of famine, flourishes, while Lot, living in the land of plenty, suffers. This leads to our third faith lesson, fear God, not man. Chapter 14 begins with this summary of international events. It's really interesting how Genesis only mentions what people are doing in the world when it's relevant to what God is doing in the world. World history, in other words, is subordinate to redemption history. And we see that in how the Lord, through the divinely inspired author Moses writing Genesis, sets out the narrative. Verse one tells us about this alliance of four kings led by Chedorlaomer, king of Elam. I'm gonna call them the Western kings and not suffer through the pronunciation of all of their very unique names and places where they ruled over. It's the Western kings, all right? Verse two tells us about another alliance of kings made up of five kings that all originate in the east. And that includes the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's where Lot lives. So they're the Eastern kings. Western kings versus Eastern kings. Western conference versus the Eastern conference. Now verse four tells us that the purpose of their alliance, the, the Eastern kings, was to rebel against Chedorlaomer, whom they had been serving under for 12 years. Now verses five to seven tell us about this previous military campaign carried out by the Western kings led by Chedorlaomer. They defeated the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, the Horites, the Amalekites, and the Amorites. Four kings defeat six nations, which is really a stunning display of their military proficiency. And then verses eight to 10 tell us about the battle of these two alliances in the Valley of Siddim. And while the Eastern Alliance outnumbered the Western Alliance five kings to four, the kings in the West emerged victorious. And verses 10 to 11 tell us that the Western kings took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions. And now we get to the interesting part. Verse 13 tells us that word of Lot's capture came to Abram, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anner. And these three brothers are allies of Abram. And the question yet again is, how will Abram respond to this test of his faith? He's already shown himself to be a selfish coward in Egypt. He wasn't willing to put his life on the line for his own wife. So why would he do that for his nephew who had taken the choicest piece of land, the Jordan Valley? After all, what hope did he have against these five bloodthirsty warlords, the conquerors of the six nations and the five eastern kings? Well, on paper, this matchup, it doesn't look good. Abram, he had 318 trained men in his household, the servants he had acquired over the years, and he had friendship with these three brothers. But these men, they're only tent dwellers. They're military rookies. They're nomads. The western kings, now they're the big shots. They're the destroyers of cities. They're the plunderers of nations. On paper, Abram had no hope. But Abram here, he remembers God's promise. He remembers God's promise that the almighty God would bless those who bless him and curse those who dishonor him. And so he resolved to bring that curse on the western kings for their treatment of his nephew. Verse 15 says that under the cover of night, his allied forces defeat the western kings who fled to Hobah, north of Damascus, which meant that he drove them out of the promised land. Now, 
I wish we could spend more time here on this point, but um, we, we won't be able to. Uh, let me just say that, that that's what walking by faith looks like. It's a life shaped by the fear of God rather than the fear of man. It doesn't matter how bad the odds seem to be against you or what you perceive other people could do to you. The one who walks by faith trusts in God as their refuge and their stronghold so that they can say with David in Psalm 27 verse three, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. That's who Abram had become by the grace of God. A radical transformation of someone who was a selfish coward to a self-sacrificing warrior who knew that God was with him. The Lord put the fear of God in him so that he no longer feared man. Now in the aftermath of his decisive military victory, the last question for us is this. Would Abram respond to his victory with pride and with greed or with humility? Would he make much of himself for this victory or would he make much of God who gave him this victory out of sheer grace? This leads to our final faith lesson. Glorify God, not yourself. Now verses 17 and 18 tell us that following his victory over Chedorlaomer and the western kings, Abram has this meeting with two kings. The first is the king of Sodom, who had just been rescued by Abram, perhaps from one of these bitumen pits that he had fallen into. And the second is the king of Salem, a mysterious man named Melchizedek. Now the narrative is set up deliberately to contrast the two kings and Abram's response to them. Verse 18 introduces Melchizedek with an open display of generosity as he brings out bread and wine. Now it would have already been a very generous gift for Melchizedek to give them bread and water, just to feed Abram's entire army and his allies. But he doesn't do that. He, he doesn't hold back. He treats them like royalty in giving them bread and wine. The king of Sodom, on the other hand, wouldn't be so generous. This man had lost everything. Everything that was taken from him by the western kings as plunder now belonged to Abram and his allies. It didn't matter that it originally belonged to him. To the victor go the spoils. But the king of Sodom wasn't ready to let go. In verse 21, he tries to lay claim over some of the spoils, saying, give me the persons, but you can have the goods. He doesn't care about the possessions, the things. He wants the people back. Because if he has people, he can become rich again. And he's not asking, he's demanding. Now once again, Abram responds in exemplary fashion. In verse 22, he lifts up his hand to the Lord as he swears an oath. He says, I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So Abram not only gives Abram his former servants, he gives him all the possessions that had been taken by the Western kings. He restores all the goods that had been taken from him, with the only exception being what his servants had eaten and what his allies had taken for their share of the plunder. And why was that? Why did he do that? Well, so that God and God alone would receive the glory when Abram became a great nation. Abram didn't want the king of Sodom going around saying, you know, I'm the reason why he's so rich. 
Those riches all belong to me, and Abram unjustly took them from me. He wanted everyone to know. Abram wanted everyone to know without question that his blessings came from no man. They came from God and God alone. That brings us to the most intriguing part of our text today, Melchizedek, who according to verse 18 was not only king of Salem, which was an ancient name for Jerusalem, but priest of God most high. He was a priest king, a man who served his people as both their mediator and as their monarch. His name is revealing of his identity. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and king of Salem means king of peace. He is not only mediator and monarch, but king of righteousness and king of peace, the one who would enforce God's righteousness and bring God's peace to his people. And the only other thing that our text tells us about him is that after he fed Abram and his army, he blesses him, saying in verses 19 to 20, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now at this point we're meant to think, well, wait a moment, I thought God was the only one that Abram wanted to bless him, not man, And that's why Abram rejected the king of Sodom's begrudging offer in verse 22 to let him keep the goods. But verse 20 tells us that Abram receives this blessing by offering Melchizedek a tithe, a tenth of all the spoils. And this act of tithing to Melchizedek was a symbolic act of acknowledging Melchizedek's superiority. Now this event, as brief as it is, is really only three, four verses is very significant in salvation history. It reveals a number of things. It reveals that God wasn't only at work in and through Abram. He was raising up other servants for himself as well. It reveals that God had already established a priesthood before the Levitical priesthood in Exodus. Um, A priesthood in the order of Melchizedek in which the priest would serve as both mediator and monarch. And it reveals that as great as Abram was and would become, There was another who was greater than him, one that he owed allegiance to. Hundreds of years later, King David would pick up on all this as he wrote about his offspring, the promised Davidic king who would reign on the throne of David forever, the Messiah. He writes in Psalm 110 verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is all very complicated and theological, but here, here's the point. David knew that the day was coming when another king would reign, a greater king, a priest king, who would rule over his people as both mediator and monarch and enforce God's righteousness and bring God's peace to his people. For those who know their Bibles, those who know Jesus Christ, you know this is talking about him. Christ would bring the definitive act of blessing on the cross, On the cross, Jesus Christ would satisfy the the demands of God's righteousness by dying on the cross for our sins so that all who trust in him could receive the blessing of God's peace. Jesus is the priest king the world has been waiting for, the one who would mediate God's favor and satisfy God's justice so that all who call upon his name would receive the everlasting blessing of the forgiveness of sins. He is our king and our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Abram has set an incredible example for us to follow. 
Okay, when we look at these four principles of what it means to walk by faith, we're not meant to think, oh yeah, I'll just start doing that tomorrow. Okay, we're meant to say how far short I have fallen of this standard. And God have mercy on me for failing to do this. If we were only left with an example, we would be lost. Because what Abram did is impossible for us to imitate. But thanks be to God, we are not left to rely on our own strength. For one who is greater than Abraham has walked by faith in all these perfect ways, but not just to set an example for us, he walked by faith on our behalf. He traveled on the ancient paths, despite how the religious leaders had abandoned them. He walked by faith, not by sight, believing that even though the the religious leaders and the people were rejecting him, he believed that God's promises were being fulfilled. He feared God rather than man, knowing that man could only kill the body but could not kill the soul. And he believed that his father would one day raise him on the third day in triumphant resurrection. And he lived for the glory of his father and not his own as he emptied himself and made himself nothing and became obedient to the point of death. Jesus has walked by faith on our behalf so that we can learn to walk by faith without fear of condemnation. And so, as we look to Abram's example of trusting God rather than himself, in believing God's promises rather than what he could see for himself, let us believe that God can change us as well, for God can and will turn the worst doubters into the strongest believers. Let's pray. Father, may it be so. May you strengthen our faith to trust in you and to glorify you above ourselves. This life is not about us, but how you would use us to point people to you, to bring you glory. May it be by the strength of the faith that you gift us with. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.